think that video is so long just to get your feelings of anger out so you can feel more about this message series. But we're talking about mean people this morning. Mean people, not bad people, because there's something in us that hesitates to call someone bad, right? Have you ever told your kids that? Like, they're not a bad person. They just do bad things, right? Like, they do a lot of bad things, but we're, we're not going to call them bad people. They're just mean people. We have a thing about calling people bad people. So we're in this series. It's called Mean People and What to Do About It. And so mean people are those, like, deceptive, they're unkind, they're just controlling, maybe, uh, either with your finances or with your kids, maybe. This is a, uh, an ex uh, in a relationship. They're just a person that you see them coming and you want to run the other way. Or maybe it's in your workplace and you get there early or you pick up different shifts so you don't have to interact with that person. Or maybe it's a boss and you switch teams because you just you can't deal with that mean person anymore. And that before we get too far into this, I want to kind of level the playing field. And that's not to say that none of us aren't mean at times. I think if we asked, have you ever been mean? All of us would raise our hand and say, yeah, I've been mean. I might have been mean this morning on the way to church to my kids. We've all been mean from time to time. And, and that's a part of, of humanity is that we're tempted to be mean. And, and so I want to kind of not just say that this is for how we're going to deal with mean people, but to also think that we can be mean as well at times. And so we're going to be proactive about that. We want to kind of figure out how do we deal with mean people and how do we kind of approach them. And when we're put in a situation where someone's mean to us or they do something just unthinkable, how are you going to react? Because if you're not prepared, if you're not proactive about it, then these mean people, they'll actually gain a measure of control in our lives. Have you ever felt that? When someone does something to you and you just, you just it consumes you, and it feels like they're just kind of directing your life, like they've got strings attached to you, and, and it just drives you absolutely nuts, and there's no way to figure out, like, how do I get through this? Because they gain a, a sense of control, and if you ignore them, that control just kind of seems to grow, doesn't it? And they keep doing this. And then eventually we start acting differently. Maybe we get angry and then we start acting mean to other people. And we start to, to feel like they're, they're pushing us and backing us into a corner that we never meant to be in. We never thought we would be in. And we start acting in a way that we never thought we would act. And, and the thing is, because mean people, they kind of keep us off balance, don't they? I grew up skateboarding and, and snowboarding like all through high school, and, and so balance is a big part of that, right? And as you're snowboarding, you kind of you lean to the sides, you know, as you're kind of gliding along, and you have to compensate for when, when someone does something mean to you, it kind of makes you step back, and then to kind of right yourself, you kind of push back, right? If, if I push you over, you're going to compensate to go back in, and mean people keep us off balance, and it forces us to kind of react, to move in another direction, maybe to be mean back to them or to say something that we don't really mean or, or to lash out or do something because we just feel backed into a corner and because it keeps us off balance. And no matter how hard we try, it feels like we can't gain a level of control over us. To, to kind of level the playing field. We try to, to get back at them, get loud, get uh, offensive, or get even with them. And we try these things to kind of right the ship and make things even between us. So uh, kind of an illustration of this, and, and 
I, as I was preparing for this, it's kind of difficult to find one good story to share about a mean person in my life. And so I've had a few of them. I'm sure you guys would have perfect examples of someone mean in your life, and you would have a good story for that. And the thing is that, you know, someone probably came to your mind already as I started talking about this. But on the flip side, there could be people that might hear this message maybe, you know, as it goes you know, viral on YouTube. And so they might hear this message and you might pop into their mind as that main person, right? But today, we're not talking about that, right? We're just going to talk about somebody else for a little bit. And so this story, like this summer, um, if you know me well at all, you know um, I'm a big fan of coffee. If you come here and you drink coffee, I roasted that coffee. Um, I have a little side hustle that I do um, and roast coffee. It's a side business. I work full-time outside of that, and so it's just a side hustle, something I enjoy doing. Um, and I've been doing it for two or three years now. Um, for two and a half years, I've roasted at home at my house. I have a, a room in my garage that we sectioned off, and we you know, sheetrocked and drywalled and insulated it and made this nice roasting room in there for me. And so um, I've been roasting coffee right along for two years. And no complaints, talk to my neighbors, we're close to our neighbors, um, and haven't heard a word. So this summer, I heard a word. Um, I got a letter in the mail um, from Code Enforcement in Bangor, uh, Hamden. So if you work for Code Enforcement, I'm sorry, you know, this is no offense to you, but no one wants to hear from Code Enforcement, right? Like, we've joked about code enforcement this morning for some reason, and no one wants to hear from you if you're a code enforcer. I'm sorry. We love you. I love the Hamden code enforcement guy. He's actually a pretty nice guy. We've emailed back and forth a bunch. I've talked to him. Um, he's a nice guy. And so, uh, but I get this letter from him, and it says that you've had a complaint of odor from a neighbor. And I was like, really? Could you send me the complaint? So we talk about it, and, and um, this neighbor who I know who the neighbor is, and here's the thing about when you complain to code enforcement. They put your name in the complaint. So they know who it is. It's not anonymous. Okay, so I get this person's complaint. I'm going to name this person Charlie because for their privacy um, and mine as well. So Charlie complains to code enforcement, and then the code guy comes, and he does a sniff test around our neighborhood. He says, I'm going to stand at the road, and I'm going to smell. And he said, I'll bring another nose with me. Right? It sounds absolutely ridiculous, doesn't it? And as you're sitting there, you're probably thinking, who doesn't love the smell of coffee, right? Exactly. So he comes, he does a sniff test. I'd never hear from him again, and it's, it's, it's good. So I contact Charlie, and I say, I'm, I'm really sorry that this has happened. I understand the neighborhood relationship. Like, I get it. I have neighbors. Um, what I'm doing affects you. And I said, like, I'm sorry that it has affected you. I wish you would have come to me first instead of going to code enforcement. I was like, I want to assure you I have all the proper permits and licenses. Everything I'm doing is legal, okay? And I don't hear back from Charlie. Charlie doesn't contact me. Um, we have a unique living situation um, at our house, and he actually contacted my mother-in-law after that, which is weird, too, in its own. So he contacts her, and, and so um, he then, you know, things progress, and he's not happy obviously. And so um, over another several weeks, um, I'm down working in my basement, and uh, I hear a door knock on the thing. And so I work in the basement from home. I'm a basement dweller. No one else was there. And so our ring doorbell kind of pops up, and I see a video, and I see it's Charlie. I was like, oh, gosh, right? Like, I don't want to answer that door. 
So he leaves, and then I text Gretchen. I'm like, Charlie was here. And then so she's like, oh, what does he want? I was like, I don't know. I didn't answer the door. And so he kind of leaves, and I'm like, whew, we dodged that bullet. And then like an hour later, Gretchen's home, and she's out for a walk, and he comes back again. And so he knocks again, so I was like, okay, he's obviously not going away, so I'll go up and I'll talk. And right from the get-go, he was just a rotten person, just not nice. Uh, he's threatening to sue me and, you know, complaining about health hazards and wants to talk to my insurance company and just a whole bunch of stuff that, um, you know, I wasn't excited to deal with. And so, and I just, if you know me at all, we've talked about the Enneagram. It's kind of a personality thing. I'm a nine. I'm a peacekeeper. Like, I hate conflict with a passion. And so, but something at that moment just like wells up inside of me and this control that he had over me over this complaint just wells up inside of me and it just, it made me feel angry and it made me want to say mean things, to do rude things and things that I normally would not want to do. And so he threatens to sue us and all this stuff and he ends up giving us a deadline, right, a grace period, he says, of January 1st to move everything out. So he's like, okay, see you later, bye. So he leaves. And then I'm feeling like, okay, I just need to get out of here. So we move everything out. It cost me a lot of money. We move. We move the roaster. And then I'm roasting. And then I have a, a friend of mine who works for Hamden contacts me and says, I just want to let you know that Charlie called the Department of Environmental Protection against you. And I was like, are you kidding me? Really? So they call, and then the DEP calls me up, and she's talking to me, and she's like, I've had more complaints than you even can imagine, and I've never once had a coffee roasting complaint. <laughs> so she's interested and wants to come see what I do and how I do it, and I was like, I'm the smallest coffee roaster in the state of Maine. Go see somebody else. I was nice, so she's on her way in a couple weeks. We haven't had our time yet, but... So it's just, it just seems to progress. I've been, tried to be nice. I told Charlie I would roast at a different time. That didn't satisfy him. He'd send me emails saying how disgusting it is and we are and all this stuff. And so um, just a tough time. And so I bring all this up to say, like, I'm with you. I've had mean people in our lives. And you're probably wondering, what was our response, right? What was our initial response to this? As I said, I work from home, so I sit in the basement, in my sweatpants, and I was stewing with evil plots to get back at Charlie. I thought I could find a dead skunk. I could put it in his mailbox, give him something really to complain about. You know, like, I was like, I'll have campfires in the back, and I'll put the stinkiest pine needles on, and I'll put rotten meat on there. Like, I'll do all these things just to give him something really to complain about, you know. And, and we have a covenant in our neighborhood, apparently, um, and so I was like watching his house with an eagle eye, just thinking like, is he breaking any of those rules, any of those covenants? We're like taking pictures. He had a trailer. You're not supposed to have a trailer in your house in our neighborhood, apparently. I found that out. So we're like trying to build this case. And as we're doing all this stuff, I soon realized I'm trying to get even with somebody that I don't really even like. And I'm trying and I'm turning into this person who I don't even like. I'm turning into the person who's being mean to me because I'm obsessing about it and, and how they affected me and how they treated me is now causing me to almost be just like that person. Have you ever felt that? And you just look at yourself and like, what am I doing? Why am I feeling this way? And the point is because it's difficult to be good to people who aren't good to you, right? 
It's difficult to be kind when people are unkind to you. And there's this thing called the golden rule, right? You've heard of the golden rule, like teachers teach it to us. It's, you know, and the golden rule is what? Do unto others as you would have done unto you. It's like old English there. But you do, you want to do to other people as you want them to treat you. And everything's great with that, right? Like I, I agree with that and everything works and it feels good and it, it sounds just and right until they mistreat you. And then people are doing unto you what you don't want done to you, right? And then you start to just get angry and then it becomes the iron rule, right? This is a new one. You probably haven't heard this one before, but it's do unto others as they have done to you, which this one sounds great. You know, this feels good. It sounds like it's just, it kind of makes sense to most of us. It's sort of natural, doesn't it? When someone does something to you, like your natural instinct is what? Is to get even, is to do something back to them. I talk to my kids about this all the time. There's something in kids growing up that like, that's what we want to do. If someone hits us, we hit them even harder. If someone's mean to us, we think of something even meaner to say back to them. If they take something from us, we take something of theirs, and then we break it and give it back to them. And it leads us to kind of overcompensate in our relationships. And this summer, I found that as I was getting frustrated with Charlie and, and his emails and, and feeling like, what are we going to do? Like, I'm looking for rent. I pay no rent at home, but now I have to pay like $1,000 for rent or $1,500 for rent. It's just, I'm not there yet. So how am I going to process and, and kind of go through this? And I'm stressed and my wife is stressed and we're just like, what are we doing? And then the kids come in and then I'm super snappy at my kids, right? We start to overcompensate and then we start to take it out on other people. You take it out on others because you can't take it out on the person who's being mean to you. Maybe it's a boss. Maybe it's a, a, an ex in a relationship or someone that you just, you can't take it out on them for one reason or another. So then you take it out on the one person that you can take it out on. And it becomes do unto others as someone else has done to you. And you can't, you just want to get even with them. But here's the thing about getting even with people. When you get even with them, you're even. And that might sound like an obvious statement, but when you get even, it makes us even with them. And then you're even with somebody that you don't even like. You don't even want to be on the same level as them. And when we think when someone does something mean to us, getting even is like bringing ourselves up here and making it even. But in reality, getting even brings you down to their level. That's what, getting, that's what getting even is. And you're getting even with someone that really you don't like. So we've got a couple options, right? You've got, you can ignore it. And as a parent, you tell your kids this all the time. I tell my kids, I'm like, just ignore them. But she's being annoying. Just ignore her. And you know that doesn't really work, right? Like we tell them that, but it doesn't really work because when you ignore a situation, it, it gets worse. When they can tell that it's bothering you, but you're not doing anything, they just, they keep poking and they keep poking and they keep chipping away and chipping away at you. And so it, it just doesn't seem to work. And then getting even doesn't seem to work because you're getting even, you're, you're kind of stooping to their level and, and you're returning evil for evil and it just doesn't work because when you get even, then they're going to get even and, and no one ends up being even and you don't want to be even or be considered like this person that you don't even like and you don't want to be associated with. And so there's those two options. And then I think that there's a third option, though. 
A third option that we're going to kind of introduce the idea of it today, and I'm going to leave it for Jim to really knock it home next week, and he'll give you like the whole third option. So we're just going to skim it for you guys this morning. But this third option, I think, really protects our hearts, and it positions us to write a better story. And we talk about that here at Journey a lot, about writing our story, and what does our story look like, and how can we write the best story in partnership with Jesus. And so we're going to talk about a man named David in the Old Testament. That's where we're going to kind of pick up and start to learn about this third option of how to deal with mean people. So if you know David, most people know David, right? He's the little guy who had the slingshot and he kills Goliath and everything's awesome. So we're not going to talk about like young David who's fighting Goliath, but we're not going to talk about King David either, the, the guy who's you know, King David, the man after God's own heart. And so we're kind of in the middle. We're talking about fugitive David. This is a time when, so David, um, he kills Goliath, right? And then Israel's like all pumped on David. He's this national hero and everyone loves David. And, and Saul, kind of King Saul takes him in and he's like, oh, David, you're the best. And, you know, he's kind of parading him around because you keep your friends close and the, the people that could be a competition to you even closer. And so he carries David along with him. But then this rogue kind of prophet comes along and says that David is going to be the next king of Israel. He, he anoints David to be this king of Israel. And so for Saul, that's threatening in its own right, because Saul is currently the king, and he doesn't want to give that up. But also, Saul has a son named Jonathan, and he wants Jonathan to be the next king. So immediately, this puts this kind of strain between their relationship. And Saul tries to kill David. So David flees. He's a fugitive from the law. He's on the lamb, you know, and he's out there. And he's got all these other men that follow him around that are kind of in similar situations. They're, they're outlaws. They're kind of the cast-offs, but they find refuge with David, and they're just kind of pillaging and going along, okay? So this is David, and this is kind of the, where we're going to pick up the story. So David's on the run from Saul, who's doing this horrible thing. You know, we think we have mean problems in our lives, but this guy's trying to kill David, so he's running from that. Okay, so this is the frustration and the anger that David's feeling, knowing that this person's doing this, but David can't really do anything about it. So he finds the next best thing, right? A, a scapegoat to put it on. So in the book of 1 Samuel, this is where we're going to pick it up, and Samuel's kind of like, he fought, it's sort of like a biography of David's life in a way. So it says, a certain man in Moan, who had property there in Carmel, which is just beyond Hermon, near Etna. And he was very wealthy, okay? So he's a super wealthy man. He's got all kinds of stuff. He had thousands of goats, right? 3,000 sheep. I could just imagine what that's like. That's like having a bunch of Bugatti cars, I guess, you could say. I don't know what a Bugatti is. My son talks about it all the time. But I hear they're expensive. So he's got all of these goats, all of these sheep, and it says in which... He was shearing in Carmel. So he's getting ready to shear these sheep. And shearing season, if you know anything about sheep, is kind of like a big deal for them. This is when you kind of learn, how much more money am I going to make? How much more money did I earn this past year? Because you're shearing all of that off, and you're going to be able to sell it. And you kind of, it's sort of like a profit and loss statement at the end of the year, right? Like, you kind of, how much money did I make? And so that's what is exciting about shearing time. So this is going on. And so it says that this man, his name was Nabal, okay? Nabal was his name. And Nabal had a wife, and her name was Abigail. 
I had a dog named Abigail once. Thought you should know that. It says, she was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was harsh and mean in his dealings. If you need to know, Nabal is the mean person in this story. He's one of them, okay? So Nabal is known as this kind of like this guy that he's just hard to deal with. No one likes to work with him. No one wants to trade with him. He's just, he's a difficult man to deal with. He's kind of harsh. He's mean. He's, he's stingy. He doesn't want to give you anything above what he owes. And he's just a difficult person. But as behind every great man, there's a great woman who's intelligent. And she's a beautiful woman. And she comes into play next week. And we're going to talk more about her next week. It says, while David was in the wilderness, okay, so he's out there going place to place. He's kind of pillaging along. So when David's in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So he's like, ooh, this could be a, a good opportunity for us, for our men. Okay, we could, we could do something with this. So he takes this opportunity, and David sends 10 men up, 10 young men, like his best guys. He sends them up. He says, go to Nabal uh, in, in Carmel and greet him in my name. Okay, I want you to go there as if I'm there. That's sort of what that means is go in my name under my authority and make yourself known to him. And I want you to, to say this thing to him. I want you to say long life to you, good health to you in your household and good health to all this all of this that is yours, okay? So basically, like, I come in peace. I want the best for you. I, want, I know that you're a rich man. I'm acknowledging that, and I hope everything goes well for you. He's, he's sort of buttering him up, right? He's kind of buttering him up, hoping that he's going to do something because Nabal's prophet really, in large part, is due to David, as we're going to see in a moment. And he goes on, and he says, uh, when your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. Okay, we were, we were near all your guys when they were watching over all those sheep. We were there with them, and we didn't mistreat them. The whole time that they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing, Like, which sounds like he's kind of showing off about this, but in reality, it's like that's the normal thing. You, know, you should be able to be alongside people and not steal their stuff. But David's acting like, yeah, like we didn't steal anything from you. How nice is that? And he's saying, like, all of this profit you have is because we didn't steal it, but we didn't let anyone else steal it either. It was due in part because of David's protection. He, he kept all the other people away. He just let them do their thing. And so no one was stealing from him because of David. He says, even ask your servants. Ask your servants and they'll tell you. Therefore, be favorable towards my men since we've come at festive time. We've just shown up and apparently it's the time when you have all this extra right? You have all this extra, and, and we want a little bit. So we've done this nice thing for you. We've protected you. We kept other people away. Would you give us a little bit of your extra? Because I know you're going to have some, so would you give some to us? He says, please give your servants, your son David, okay? Your son David, whatever you can find for them. And when David's men arrived, it said, uh, they said all this, and when they arrived, they gave Nabal the message, and they gave it in David's name. And so Nabal then makes them wait. And so they wait, and then they wait. We don't know how long they wait, but it seems interesting that they point this out, that they waited for him, almost like he had to think about it. Like, how much extra do I really have? Do I have a lot of extra I could give them? Or I don't really want to, or maybe I'm just going to make them sweat it out and, and, and wait down there. So they're waiting to hear their response. So here's the thing about David. 
that you should know. Okay, we're going to kind of go with this. David was a ruthless man at this time. Like everyone likes to think of David in the book of Psalms and he's like playing the trumpet and singing cool songs and stuff like that. That, that was David. He did that kind of stuff. But David was a ruthless man ruthless man. And, and even by ancient standards, he would go from town to town in the Philistines, and he would just kill everyone who was there, all the men. And a couple chapters later, it says this. It says, whenever David attacked an area, he didn't leave a single man or woman alive. He killed everybody. He, everyone died when David showed up. Like, he didn't save one to go tell the tale. He just murdered everybody. And he took all the sheep, all the cattle, the donkeys, the camels. He even took the clothes off the dead bodies. Like, that's David, okay? The man after God's own heart, right? So this is David. He's known as this ruthless, ruthless man. And I think that's part of why he wanted to send these guys up there and say, go in my name. Make sure you mention me. Because when you mention my name, David, in this, the Philistine area, they're going to know who they're dealing with, okay? So that's David, and it says, Nabal answered David's servants, who is David? Like, who is this guy? Who is this son of Jesse? So he says son of Jesse, like, they, he knows who he is, right? Like, he knows that David is Jesse's son. He's like, who is this? Many servants, like, they leave their masters, and they go on and do big things these days. Like, there's a ton of people like David out there. Like, who is this David guy? I'm not worried about him. Who is this guy? And he says, uh, you know, many people are doing that. They're breaking away. He's like, why should I take any of my bread? Why should I move on and take any of my bread or my water, the meat that I've slaughtered from my shearers, the people who are doing my work, and give it to men coming from who even knows where? A group of men who have no home at all. Why should I share what I have with these guys? Your master is a nobody. He's an outlaw that no one wants to take in. In fact, people are trying to kill him. Why should I do that? So David's men, they turn back, okay? They turn back, they turn around, and they go back to David. And when they arrive, they report every word that Nabal says to him. And I'm sure they were a little nervous about this. Like, they know who David is. They know what's going to happen if they bring this type of word back to David. And so they bring this back to David, and David's response is, well, it was a good try. You know, we tried. Let's move on to the next thing. No, that's not what he said, actually. He said, all right, strap on your swords, right? Each one of you, let's go. We're gearing up. We're going to head up there, and I'll show up, and I'll show him why we deserve to have this. Strap on your swords. We're doing this. And then it says, so they did. And then David strapped his sword on as well, which seems like a weird little detail to add there. Like, why would you think that they need to point out that David is also going to strap his sword on. And I think the significance of this is because David's sword was sort of special in a way. Do you know where David got his sword from? It was likely Goliath's sword. After killing Goliath, he took his sword with him. And so he would carry that around as a symbol that God is with the Israelites, that God protected them, that God will provide for them, that he'll do all of these things for Israel, that when God is for Israel, no one can stand in their path. So David didn't even need to strap that sword on. Just the fact that he had it with him is something that should have been like a symbol to people to say, don't mess with this guy. But also, it shows us that all David probably had to do was to ask God for help. He probably just needed to say, God, I need you to intervene in this situation. 
We've done good things. This guy wants to be rude and be mean and nasty towards us. I need you to intervene in this. And God probably would have done that. We don't know, but I bet God would have said, I've got this, David. See, he's forgotten God's provision for him because he's angry. He feels backed into a corner, and now he's overcompensating to to get revenge. He wants to take it out on him. Since he can't take it out on Saul, the person he's really angry at, who, who really he owes all this frustration and anger, he's going to take it out on the ball in all of his people. And it says about 400 men went up with David, 400 warriors to go defeat some sheep shearers. That's a little bit of an over, like, I think he's going to win, right? Like, that's a massacre. That's not a, an even fight. That's not getting even. That's destroying a man, killing everybody for some sheep and some wool that comes from that. And, and, and we all know this, right? That hurt people, they do what? They hurt people. We've done it. We've had it done to us. You know when someone's going through something and, and it seems like they're hurt and you, you kind of there, try to be there, and then they seem like they're mad at you for no reason. It's because hurt people hurt people. And in this case, hunted people, David's being hunted, hunted people hunt people. Right? So, you know, if Saul's going to come after me, I'm going to go after this guy. I'm going to take him down. I'm going to do whatever it, it takes to take him down. And so David does what a lot of us do. I've done this. I do this pretty much every time I get in my car. I start kind of game planning in my head or having these harsh conversations. Do you do that? Or am I just the weird one? Like if I'm upset with somebody, I'm driving and, and I have this awesome conversation with them where I just like rip them a new one and I come up with these sweet one-liners that just like totally knock them back. And, and I win every argument when I'm doing this, by the way. But we have this plan. And so David's sort of doing that. He starts talking about justifying his actions. He's trying to build a case that says, I'm right for doing this. Okay, I do this in, in, in because I have a reason to fight back. I have a reason to be angry. It says David had just said, it's been useless. This all has been useless. All my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. I did all of that for nothing. I tried to help him. I tried to be there and do the nice neighborly thing. And this is what he does. It says he's paid me back evil for good. I've done a good thing, and he's paid back evil. And David's building a case for revenge, trying to justify in his mind that he deserves this, and I deserve to, to basically take everything this man has. I'm going to get justice. He's going to get what he deserves. And so all along, and so we get to this point, and, and David's saying, like, I have evil for, he's doing evil for good. I've done all this stuff. So we have two characters, right? We've got this guy named Nabal. I think it's the next slide. Maybe not. Yes, there we go. We've got Nabal. We've got David. Okay, two, two main characters, two people who are, you know, not doing the best of things. Okay, we have Nabal, who's what? Returning evil for good. Okay, someone did something good for him, and he's returning evil for that. He's being nasty back. He's not, you know, sharing or, and giving someone their due. And then we have David, who's returning evil for evil. Not great options, right? Both of these aren't good. Nabal's kind of being maniacal in a way. He's, he's just being an evil person. And then David's being pretty predictable, right? That's what a lot of people would say. Yeah, David totally is justified to go up there and 
put the smack down on the ball for not helping him out. And so you got two people, you got no heroes in this story at all. You have just two guys fighting over a bunch of sheep, really. That's, that's what it is. And sometimes it seems the evil for evil is, is the right thing, is the natural thing, but it's, it's the predictable thing, the thing that everyone expects, the thing that sounds right, but in, the, in reality we know it's just not the right thing to do. It doesn't get you where you want to be in life. And so I think that there's a third option, a third option to this that we talked about earlier, and Jim's going to kind of pick up the story there. And so we're not going to continue on with David because then I would give it all away and then Jim would be like, what do I preach on next week? And he wouldn't have anything. So we're going to be nice to Jim. But between now and then, okay, we're just going to kind of pause the story there. But, but before we get there, I got four questions that I think would be good for us to be thinking about this next week and thinking about as we kind of deal with mean people or maybe think back through situations that have been recently happening in your life and to help us kind of gain some perspective. And you don't have to do all of these things. I'm not, it's not homework, but just to kind of mentally play through these exercises, all right? The first question is this. Do you really want to be even with somebody you don't even like? Do you want to lower yourself to a standard of somebody that you don't have any plans to, to be hanging out to be best friends with? Like, why put yourself on that same level of somebody that you don't even want to be like them? Why would you do that? Do you want to do that? Hurting people back doesn't end the cycle. It just perpetuates it, right? If I get even, then they're going to be like, what the heck? And then they're going to get even with me. And then I'm going to get even with them. And then they're going to get even with me. And it's just this cycle that just continues on and on. So do you want to be even with someone you don't even like? Question two is, wouldn't you rather be ahead? Wouldn't you rather take a step ahead of that person and say, you know, they're going to treat me this way, but I'm going to take this other option. I'm not going to return evil for evil. I'm going to do better than that. I'm going to, I'm going to remain ahead. I'm going to take the high road. I'm not going to lower myself to those standards. To, to be intuitive, you know, it's, it's, it's really to, to pull ahead of that person. You're not getting even because getting even would be lowering yourself to them. But if you step out of that and you can put yourself ahead of them, wouldn't you rather be ahead? And the third question is this. What story do you want to tell? What story? When, when someone asks you, how did that situation go? I remember you were talking about this person. They were just absolutely terrible to you or that, that relationship that you had and that person was, was just so horrible to you. Like, what happened with that? What's the story that you want to tell? Is that you'll never believe what I did back to them. I put this thing in their mailbox and they'll never get the stink out of that thing. Like, it sounds cool and we like to think about those things. It's fun to think of revenge. Like, I loved that show Revenge was on TV. Like the whole show was built on that and it was great. But it's not the ultimate answer. And the thing is, when, you, when this situation is just a story that you're telling, what's the story that you want to tell? Do you want to tell something that, you know, a year from now you're like, I cannot believe that I did this, but this is what I ended up doing and I feel horrible about it. I feel horrible that I affected their family this way, that I did this terrible thing, and, and I'm ashamed to even tell this story now. And instead, what's the story that you want to tell? Or what's the story you want told about you in the way that you handled it? When they tell the story, when they say, I did this thing to, to my coworker or my neighbor or, or this girl I was dating, and I was just a horrible person, and would you, you want to know what they did back to me? You don't want to know what they did? 
What's the story that you want told about you? And this comes in next week. Jim is going to these next this question in our last one. Jim is going to really flesh these out and kind of give us what that third option is. But the fourth one is one that's even tougher. It's a really uncomfortable question, I think. What would it look like to return good for evil? What would that look like? It's uncomfortable, isn't it? It might be it might be totally fine thinking about that if you have no situations like this in your life, but this message, like a lot of times we preach things and you think I'm preaching to you guys, but this message is me literally figuring out how I'm going to respond to Charlie in this whole situation. That's what this is. So I'm not preaching to anybody but myself. And when I think about this, this is a terrible idea. It's hard. It's like eating Brussels sprouts, right? No one likes those. They're gross. They stink. They're terrible, but they're good for you, moms, right? I'll help you out. They're good for you, kids. You should eat them. No, they're terrible. Okay, but this is a question that we all need to ask ourselves. What would that look like? And if you are here and you don't, you don't um, maybe believe what we believe, and, and you're not sure if you even believe that there's a God, and you don't know kind of anything about Jesus at all, this is a good question to ask and to think, like, what would it be like if I just did something good for that person, even though they don't deserve it, even though I should do something totally mean back to them? Like, what would happen if I returned good for evil? But if you are a Jesus follower today, you've got to eat your vegetables. If you are a Jesus follower, then we need to ask this question because there's a lot of stuff that Jesus said. There's a lot of things that Jesus talked about. But this one was pretty clear, that Jesus was very specific in how we should treat people who mistreat us. And Jesus would say, you need to return good for evil. When someone mistreats you, you need to do good to them. And you need to, to not mistreat them. When someone is mean to you, you need to go above and beyond back to them. It's the gospel. We were singing a song this morning about, about Jesus and what he's done for us. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what it is, that a man who had no faults would do something for a group of people who had plenty, that every person in this room has done mean things, has sinned against God, has done all these horrible things, and Jesus said, you might deserve the worst, but I'm going to give you the best. I'm going to step out. I'm going to do good for evil. So this is the gospel. Jesus would say, I don't want you to ignore them. I don't want you to do evil for good. I don't want you to just, you know, um, just be there. I don't want you to, to just let it slide. I don't want you to liken yourself to them. I want you to go above that and do good things because getting even is natural. It's predictable. And Jesus doesn't want you to have a predictable life. I believe that. I think Jesus wants each person here to have a remarkable life. That he wants to make your life better. And I think the way that we do that, the way that we can step out when we are in a situation with mean people is to answer this question. What would it look like? And I don't have the answer for that for you. I barely have the answer for that in my own situation. But what would that look like? And I tell my kids this all the time. We're going to close with this. Is that you can't control what? The actions of other people. You can't control what someone else does to you. You can't control what someone else says about you what someone says to you. You can't control that. But 
You can control your own reactions. You can control how you respond to that. You can control what you say. And it starts with answering this question. What would it look like if I would return good for evil? We can't control them, but we can control ourselves. So we're going to pick up there next week um, for part two of Mean People and what to do about it. Before we go, I'm just going to pray for you guys. And if you think of it during this week, would you pray for me as well as uh, I go through what we're going through? And um, it feels like it's in the back room now, but you never know. Things pop up. But God, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity to come, to just be open to your word, God, and open to what you would have for us. Pray that you would use uh, this text and this teaching to convict us, God, to shape us and to mold us, to be more like you, God, to think about other people and to figure out what's the best way forward. How can we return good even when a person deserves anything but goodness? Return to them, Father. We're just thankful for this time. Be with Jim as he's away and protect them as they travel and bring them back to us, God. We love you. We thank you. Pray for all the kids out tonight trick-or-treating, that you would keep them safe and keep them healthy as they ingest a mass amount of sugar. In your name we pray. Amen.